Well, that's a pretty powerful message right there, how um, worship can get lost in routine. Um, So we're going to be talking about worship today. So if you have a Bible, let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I hope you picked up an outline. Uh, The words will be coming up on the screen. As we make our way through the first uh, seven verses in chapter 5, before we read that, just set up a little little context as to where Solomon is in his, his writing in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, this past week, February 12th, Abraham Lincoln and I have something in common. We have a birthday on the same day. So I can't believe I'm 39 years old already with 24 years of experience. So you can do the math uh, on that. But the day started off, I had my grandson all, all day long. He's four years old. And uh, he decided to, you know, have Grandpa run and catch him. So he's running around the island in our, our kitchen and uh, we have like a vinyl flooring in the kitchen, and uh, Grandpa was in his socks, and so as I made my way around the corner, my feet flew out from under me, and I, you know, had a mighty crash. Now, no one came to see if I was okay. Uh, he was laughing. My wife was laughing so hard. It was uh, like, did, it, did he break a hip? Did he hurt his arm? Or what? So, you know, uh, so that's how my day started. I, I, I mean, I bruised my the forearm, my knee is still giving me some fits. And uh, so that's the way the day started. And then uh, just a few hours later, our dishwasher broke down. And a few hours after that, uh, towards the evening, our dryer went kaput. And uh, two lights, the, the bulbs went out. And I'm thinking, I got to go to bed because something bad's going to happen today, right? So uh, I survived that birthday. I've declared no more birthdays for Greg from here on out. Um, and so, oftentimes in our birthdays, you know, it's a day of celebration, like Valentine's Day is a day of celebration, and, and people, you know, shower you maybe with gifts, or uh, maybe, the, you know, like on, I'm on Facebook, and so a lot of people said happy birthday, and, and those kinds of things, and so we, uh, we, we love it when, you know, people acknowledge us, and, and, uh, and so Solomon, in his writing in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, you know, it was, this, this was kind of an experimentation for him. He had lived his entire life just driven by pleasure. You know, whatever's going to bring me pleasure, whatever I think is going to bring me happiness or satisfaction or contentment in life. In fact, Solomon went after it so much, he wrote in there, he says, I denied myself nothing. Just like on my birthday, right? I deny myself nothing. Because it's a, it's a day of celebration. But this is the way he lived his entire life. But what frustrated Solomon was is that he came to the conclusion that no matter what he was chasing after, and remember he had all the money in the world, he could do anything he wanted, he had all the power in the world, I mean he, he, he could do anything, anywhere, anytime that he wanted to do it. What frustrated him is that all of those things he chased after could not bring him more than momentary satisfaction. And after that, they just left him empty. In fact, they left him emptier than he was already empty from what he tried to chase after before. And so his conclusion was, you know what, life is pretty much meaningless, right? Uh, All vanity, like chasing the wind. You know, you just live your life, you chase chase after all these things, but you just can't scratch that itch and then you die. (laughs) It's like, it's all over with. What's the meaning of it? What's the purpose of it? And so as Solomon is is dealing with his frustration, which is what the whole first four chapters have been about, is that he's he's chasing after one thing after another, and and he's not finding what he's looking for. 
And another observation that he made is that at the core of humanity's problem is it's not so much about our horizontal behavior as it is about a vertical relationship. And this is where he makes a shift in chapter 5, in the first seven verses. He all of a sudden turns, remember, in, in the chasing of all these things of he's seeking satisfaction from, he put God out of his life in the back burner. He was living under the sun. Um, it was just, you know, his life and what he wanted to do and his pursuit. It was all about him. Me, 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 I, 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 my, my, mine. And then all of a sudden, he begins to, it begins to dawn on him, you know what? The reason why these vertical things, these horizontal things can't bring me ultimate satisfaction is because I have neglected, I have run away from, I have discarded my vertical relationship with my creator. Now, notice how he picks it up in chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Hmm, I think there's a worship song along those lines. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple, temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore... Stand in awe of God. Now remember, again, Solomon was living for self. Living for self means I live as a consumer. And if we're not careful, we, even we as followers of Jesus Christ can still live in our consumer mentality. We all, we were called out, remember churches, the called out ones, we were called out of consumerism out of me into we, right, into, into Christ. And so our, our lives are to, to make this shift. But if we're not careful, we just continue to carry consumerism on through our lives, especially when it pertains to worship. For example, when you come to a worship service on Sunday, uh, are you here to be entertained by God? Are you here to be entertained by those that are up here on this platform? Are, are you the audience and, and God is somewhere else? Uh, for example, um, when you come to church, it's like uh, when you come as a consumer, you, you come as a critiquer, right? So after the service is over, you may think, you know, wow, wow, the praise team just wasn't, they just weren't on it today, and, and, and Greg's message, wow, it just went way too long, and I, I just really didn't get that much out of it. And so we come to church as consumers, and it becomes about us. Did anybody say hi to me? And if they did say hi, did they smile? And, and so I, I've read in the back of magazines where they have the secret church shopper, where they come as a consumer and they evaluate everything, right, and critique everything, is that what worship is really about? Or is God the audience? And if he's the audience, he's the one you ought to be critiquing, not me. So consumerism is something that is so ingrained within us, we can participate in it without even actually realizing that is what we are doing. 
And so millions of people come to worship every single week as consumers. And this is what, this is what um, Solomon was doing. I mean, it's the, worship is nothing more than the same as a, as a good concert or a movie or, or a good performance by somebody. We just come, as she said in the uh, video, we just kind of check our, our box, and boy, we went to church today, and we got that box checked, and now let's move on to the next event, and on to the next event. And so we relegate and we dissect worship into a specific time, place, and event when actual worship is something that is characteristic of our lives and should be experienced all day long. Even though we come to the house of God on Sundays and we collectively, as called out ones, as a church family, we come together and we worship the Lord and we, we express our love and our care and our concern for one another. And we pray for one another, help one another, encourage one another, all of those things. But all of those things are an act of worship. Because you're serving others, and when you're serving others, you're actually serving the Lord. And so what Solomon challenges us is to check our motives, the motives of our heart when we come to worship. And David said the same thing in Psalm 139 and verse 23. He said it this way. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. And so again, consumerism can infiltrate us in many, many different ways. For example, when you come to pray, do you enter into prayer just like you jump into prayer and all of a sudden you just download everything on God, you know. It's like, okay, Lord, here's my laundry list, uh, you know. Yeah, make, sure, make sure you got a pencil and paper. Make sure you get this stuff down. And I just download it on him and say, in Jesus' name, and now I'm done. And I'll come back a little later on and I'll check to see how God's doing. You'll notice what um, Solomon says when he goes to the house of the Lord. He talks about listening. And so I, I purposefully this morning said, okay, we're going to be silent, and I'll let you be silent for one minute, and I know some of you, you're tapping your foot, and you're getting a little, mm, when are we, when's, this, when's this time going to be up? And so we never stop long enough to listen. Listen is not even factored into our prayer life, much less our worship life, and then we wonder why we don't hear from God, and it's kind of like, Okay, Lord, chop, chop, I put my order in, let's get it going here. I call this a curbside grocery shopping prayer. You know, we, we, we love that, right? You can call Kroger's, you can give them their list, and they, they get the list, they get it all together. At a specific time, you come and you park your car, they open up the back end of your car, they throw your groceries in the car, you take them home and you check them, make sure they did everything right, they got every item right, every item correct, and if they did not, then you're going to call somebody, you're going to let them know about it, right? So sometimes this is the way we approach God, even in our prayer life, is that we like give him our order, we expect him to fill the order, get it all bagged up, get it all done when we want it done and by the, the way we want it done, and it better not be messed up or I'm going to complain to somebody. And so this is not God-centered view of life or ministry, and um, this, is the, uh, this is what Solomon is going to address. How do we get God back into the center of our lives and the center of our existence so that we don't come with a consumer mindset. Another way uh, we can begin a consumer mindset is 
some people have the attitude about church is, well, you know, church is that thing you do because, you know, I've been living like hell all week, and so I need a good cleansing from my guilt and shame, so I'm going to go to church, offload that onto God, and, and once I get there and offload that onto God, I begin feeling a little better about myself, then I can pull out my cell phone, look at my cell phone, do whatever else I want to do during worship because, you know, I've already offloaded everything to God. It's what I call the car wash approach. You know, it's like going to car wash, right? So you clean your car, and then the rest of the week you get all dirtied up, you take it back to the car wash, and you wash it all over again. And the only purpose of the car wash is to get you clean. And for some people, that's the only purpose of church for them is to offload their guilt and shame so they can make it another week. Consumerism. And so Solomon says, what, what is your heart attitude when you go to meet with God? How are you approaching him on a daily basis? And so what he does is he contrasts a wise Christ-centered approach as as um, opposed to a consumer foolish mindset approach when we come to, to the Lord. I, I hear people say all the time, you know, I'm going to go to church today and get my worship on. I hope you got your worship on long before you got to the church. Because if you did not, then here's, here, I know you, don't, you may not admit this, but the thought is, and the way you enter into that worship time on Sunday mornings is that, man, I hope, the, I hope the band is good so they can get me all riled up and get my worship going. I hope they can get me all fired up and get me all, you know, on emotional high so I, I, I can get through this service and really feel God and really sense God's presence. I, I read so many times on Facebook where people come back from church and they say, man, the band was great. The pastor was great. I mean, I really got my worship on today. And everything is mentioned except the person that they were there to worship who's God. And where's Jesus in all this? He gets lost in the shuffle. And so Solomon says, this can happen to any of us. And uh, here's the big idea, is that you were made by God. And you were made for God. And worship is to be done to the right God in the right way with the right heart. That's where he's getting us to. When we have this relationship with our creator, the father who created us, who breathed life into us, it is so, so easy for him to get lost in the shuffle of our lives. And Solomon just saying, look, uh, I, I've tried it all, done it all, and I'm telling you, it, it just does not give you what you're looking for. What I really needed to work on was not my horizontal pleasures, but my vertical relationship with the God who created me. He is to be the center of everything. Not a slice of the pie. He's to be the hub of the wheel. And everything else builds around him in your life. You don't, you don't separate the sacred from, you know, the, um, the rest of life. Well, this is my work life. This is my church life. This is my home life. This is No, it, it is all to be integrated together. And so Solomon gives us, I think, really three very simple principles that we can all learn and remember together this morning. And the first one is this, is to listen. It is to listen. Notice how he starts out of the gate here. He says, guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Now, when Solomon says he's entering the house of, the, of God... That for him would be the temple. 
And so this is the temple that Solomon built uh, during his lifetime. It took 153,000 workers seven years to construct the temple. What was the purpose of the temple? The purpose of the temple was a place where people could go to worship. Unlike us, our bodies have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in the construct of the temple, tabernacle first, then temple, was a place called the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. Actually dwelt, the presence of God. And so they would come to temple for a variety of different reasons. It was a place of worship where they would bring their tithes and their offerings, their sacrifices. They would go for ritual cleansings, and they would sing and pray and celebrate and fellowship with one another and care for the poor. All of these were acts of worship. All of these were constructs as to why they came to the temple. Now, it's not that they did not worship outside of the temple because worship has never been you know, segregated just to one specific place. But it was a specific place for them to come in order to do things that they would not probably normally do. Now, in, as, um, as the you know, Old Testament unfolds and you get into the intertestamental times, the 400-year period from the end of the Old Testament to the New Testament, it is during that time that synagogues begin to spring up and they were much smaller places of worship. You had to have uh, a certain number of male Jews in a, in a town in order to have a synagogue. And so people would go to the synagogues on Sundays or Saturdays for them. And so they would worship there. But on the festive days, the festivals, the seven festivals of the Jewish calendar, they would go to the temple in Jerusalem and there they would, uh, they would worship there. But certainly Solomon says to us, the purpose, the temple was not needed by God. It was needed for God's people, right? So God isn't like this um, homeless person who needed a place to, to, you know, a building to construct and to reside in. That was not the purpose. It was, the, it was so that people would come. And when they were to come to the temple, Solomon says, they were to come, and when they entered into the temple, it wasn't like just enter into the temple and just dump something out on God. He said, no, I want you to come, and I want you to listen. And the Hebrew, it's, you don't really pick it up in the English, but in the Hebrew, it is a very strong construct. It basically would say, shut up and listen. Now, why would Solomon use such strong language? The reason God uses strong language like that is not because he's mad at you. It's because he has a point to make. A very specific point. You see, when we come into God's presence, um, oftentimes it's very difficult for us to just sit and listen. And when we fail to sit and listen, we miss much of what God wants to do. See, we think worship's about singing, worship is about praying, and it is those things, but listening to God, sitting, meditating, pondering, reflecting, all of that is just as much worship as it was when you were standing up and singing praises to your heavenly father as Carol and Caleb were leading us this morning. And so how, how are you preparing? What, what is your first responsibility, hope, or goal most people think that, you know, churches, you just kind of roll in and roll out and treat it like any other meeting task or responsibility. But again, the, our, our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're not limited to a time. We're not limited to a space. We're not limited to a specific place or day of the week. We can worship every single day. And one of the ways we do that is by 
sitting in silence and waiting for the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to download upon us. But oftentimes when we think about entering into God's presence, we think about speaking, we think about talking, we think about impressing God. So worship is not about impressing God. And one of the ways we do that is like, at least for me, um, you know, when I was saved, I didn't, I had very little knowledge about how to pray or any of those things. I, I was never raised in a in a Christian home or church, and I, I just didn't have any knowledge about those things. And what I learned, I learned by observation while being in a youth department. And, uh, you know, youth are strange beings, so, you know, you, you may not learn everything you ought to learn. Uh, but I learned some things in, in youth department. But oftentimes, you know, you come into God, and, and the result is people come in, and they just want to talk about They just want to unload on God. And we talk about, oh, Lord, this is what I accomplished, and this is what I'm working on. And, and uh, these are the people that I'm helping. These are the goals that I'm pursuing. And, and it's almost like you are trying to share your resume with God in prayer in order to impress him. Or sometimes we enter into worship and, we, you know, it used to be, it's not so much in our day and time, but it used to be, like when I got saved, that we, you know, everybody wanted to, you, you wanted to wear your best, right? Everybody, men wore a suit and, and women wore dresses. And, and so it was almost like you have to dress up to impress God. And, and somebody, and, I, and, and, you know, I came to church <laughs> with my raggedy jeans, my holy t-shirts, literally holy and, uh, you know, I was a sight to look at, but with my long hair and my foul mouth, but people just loved me because they knew that, that Jesus needed to change my heart and my life. And so they didn't, you know, they didn't push back on that, but I had nobody to impress, right? I wasn't trying to impress God and people would say, well, you know, I, I would, I would challenge sometimes in the youth department, I'd say, well, you know, uh, what, why is it on Easter that, you know, you're trying to reach lost people and lost people don't wear suits and they don't wear dresses to church on Sundays. Uh, and then you guys wear your best outfits ever. And people would say, push back and they go, well, you know, uh, you want to you give God your best. To which I said, you know, they say, well, someone would say, well, if, if, if you got invited to, to have dinner with the president of the United States, would you not dress up? Not if he was my father. Who's God? He's your father. I remember as a pastor when I stopped wearing suits and I got very heavily criticized. Got a lot of emails, a lot of letters. And people said, well, you know, Greg, since you stopped wearing suits, your preaching's just not the same and it's just not da-da-da-da. I'm like, Really? See, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, you know, dress up for church. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm glad you have clothes on and all that. Um, but if I'm trying to reach somebody who, like me, has never been to church, and they walk in and everybody's dressed up, and guess what they feel? Out of place. Now, you can say what you want. If somebody invited you to a black tie affair and they didn't tell you and you just showed up, in your jeans and t-shirt, you'd feel hugely out of place. And I just thought, well, you know, that's what this way lost people feel. That's the way I felt. I'm like, man, I'm I am not dressed for this. 
So my neighbor, who had you know, a son close to my age, they had a suit they gave me, and it was a three-piece suit, man. It had the, the little vest, little tie, and I, I wore that thing every single Sunday because it was the only suit I had, right? So I, trying to be, you know, I was trying to live up to what I felt like was the expectations, but nobody put that expectation on me. I put it upon myself. I just thought what you needed to do. So I wore that suit, and, you know, and I did grow a, a little bit. And so, you know, the suit, the pants just kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and the sleeves kept crawling up more. So I thought, well, I, I got to give this up. So uh, my point is, it, this isn't about impressing God, nor is it about dropping off your punch list. So when we enter into God's presence, especially in a time of prayer, and we're just seeking after God and seeking his presence and, and, and seeking his heart, um, you know, when I work construction, uh, building water and sewage treatment plants, when the, when the job was done... And before the, they would sign off on the job to give the company the rest of their money, they had inspectors come on the job, and they would, they would begin developing what was called a punch list. And this punch list may be five pages long, may be 20 pages long or longer, but it were the items, you need to fix this, you need to fix this, you need to change this, you need to fix this. And until you, you, you completed the punch list, those who were the, you know, the power of being over this job, they would not sign off on the job, and thus the rest of the money was not released to the company and uh, saying this is a completed job. Sometimes, if we're not careful, this is the way we treat God. We come with this punch list that we give to him, and we call it prayer. And um, this, this just isn't what, what prayer is about. It's not what worship is about. The purpose of prayer was... was um, not to meet God and then treat him like a subordinate, like here's my list, here's my punch list, just please take care of that for me. No, worship is so much more than that. There's so much more about this relationship that we have with God. And so I, I, my, my whole point this morning is simply this. I don't want you to think about worship and prayer and time with God as a time where you just come in and you, you need to feel like you impress God. And sometimes that's why people won't pray publicly because, of, well, you know, it, I don't pray well. And, and, you know, or sometimes people pray, you know, long flowery prayers and all kinds of these and thous and, you know, all kinds. God's so mighty and transcendent and uh, all these flowery words is like they're trying to impress people. And so, no, God, this relationship with God is so important to us. The goal is to get God sent, our lives centered around him once again. Because, listen, it is about prayer. Worship is about hearing a word for God and from God. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Most of you think, well, why, why, what's this for God? Why isn't it just, you know, we just want to hear a word from God. No, for the Lord refers to his will. From the Lord refers to how I want to apply his will. So my question every day is simply this, Lord, when I get up in the mornings, it's, Lord, what message do you have for me today? Now, notice the verbiage of that. What message do you have for me today? It's not, Lord... Let me unload my punch list on you. In Jesus' name, I'm on my way. What message do you have for me? Because, God, I want your will. I don't want my will. Sometimes we approach the Bible. Sometimes we approach our devotional. It's like, oh, I got a situation. Let me dig through the Bible and find a passage that deals with that so I can just read that passage. And it might be that's not where God wants you today. He might want you somewhere else.
because he has a message for you that is, that is applicable to you that you need for that moment and that time. And God's going to say, you know, just read this and let me download this in you because I have a message for you. I'm going to give you an example right out of my own prayer life this week. Right? So, um, so we're wanting to know, God, Lord, what is it that you have? Because my heart's desire is to serve my master. It's not my master to serve me. See, this, that's the reverse, right? Consumer says, God, it's all about you ministering to me. It's about, all about you doing for me. But no, when Jesus gave us his model prayer, he started off by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything in the beginning of that prayer was centered and focused around our Father and not around us. So that's the way I want to start my day, right? What message do you have for me? Because if, if I'm not ready to receive instruction or correction or encouragement, then I probably just won't be interested in what God has to say. So let me give you an example. Uh, so go to Psalm 3. Uh, that's where I was this week. I've been reading through the Psalms again and um, just taking one Psalm a day. And so my, I come to the psalm and says, like, Lord, what message did you have for me today? So as I read this, um, psalm is a very interesting psalm that was written by David as he was fl fleeing from his son Absalom. Absalom had overtaken his throne and kicked David out of Jerusalem. And, um, and so here's what David says. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes, my enemies, right? How, how many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, but you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep, and I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O God. Strike my, and that, this is interesting, strike all my enemies on the jaw. <laughs> Break the teeth of the wicked. And from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on, on your people. So as I, as, I, as, as I was reading this psalm and contemplating and listening, I'm just, I just read, and as I'm reading, I'm listening. I'm not talking to God. I'm not asking for anything. I just started by saying, Father, I, I want your message for me. And I, I camped on this passage for a week it's not like, and I'll talk about this in a minute, you, you, right, you don't want to read for distance, you want to read for depth. And so I, I'm just listening, I'm just listening. And so all of a sudden, Holy Spirit starts saying, well, you know, there's some words that, that really popped out to me. And there's three main words that popped out. The first one is shield. And verse 3 says, but you are a shield around me. And then in verse 5, he says, the Lord sustains me. And then verse 8, the Lord he comes, he's my deliverance. And so here's what I jotted down as I was listening to the Lord. My father is my shield. He's my sustainer. He's the one who saves. He's the one who delivers. That's rich. But then I said, okay, Holy Spirit, I, I'm, I'm sure you got more than that. And so as I thought about the word shield, I just camped out on that word. And then as I was camped out on that word, I began thinking back when I was a kid, one of the things I loved to watch, and it was very popular back then, and, you know, we have all the Marvel heroes now, but back then it was just Superman and Batman, right? So I watched Superman, and it was always amazing to me how Clark Kent, 
you know, Lois Lane could not, did not know he was Superman just because he put on glasses, that, that kind of cues. So, you know, he would go in and he would, he, you know, he'd become Superman. He'd have his little tights on with the big S on his chest and he'd be adorned in his cape. And it, what was amazing to me was, is that every time that bad guys were like shooting him, it, you know, the, it was always, the bullets just bounced right off his chest. And I thought, now as an adult, I thought, well, why in heck didn't they just shoot him in the leg or in the head or in the arm so they wouldn't bounce off? So the point is that Superman was like, he was like a shield. He put on that outfit and it was a shield and nothing could penetrate him. His enemies could not penetrate his heart. You have an enemy. His name is Satan, and he tries to penetrate your heart every single day of your life. And he will, he will, listen, he will zero in on your areas of weakness, your low self-esteem, your insecurities, your, your um, frustrations, where, you, where your deepest hurts are, where your greatest fears are. And he's just constantly hounding you and bullet after bullet after bullet after bullet and we, in and of ourselves, we can't take that, right? We just, like, we fold like a deck of cars. But if I allow God to be my shield, all of a sudden he absorbs those, those thoughts from the enemy in my mind that are constantly dragging me down. And he is the one then who, who sustains me. The Lord is the one who sustains me. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to fear anything because my, my father's going to sustain me in these things. And this is the beautiful part. And then he says, I will strike the enemies on the jaw and I will break the teeth of the wicked. David prays, Lord, hit them in the face and break their jaw and knock out their teeth. Why would he pray that? That's not your normal prayer. Why the jaw? Because that's where the voice of accusation comes from. Mike Tyson, who could have been one of the greatest boxers ever in his prime until he got his head all messed up, had a, made a very famous statement when people were questioning him and interview him before a fight about his opponent's strategy and their plan of attack. And he made a very famous statement. He says, everybody has a, a plan until they get punched in the face. Right? So his point was, the minute he punched them in the face, their plan just go, kind of goes out the window. Well, this is, what our, this is what, again, what our enemy is seeking to do to us is he's just constantly seeking to come after us and it's okay to pray the Mike Tyson prayer. Punch the enemy in the mouth, God. Drown out his accusing voice in my head with your truth. Show your power as my shield and my sustainer. You are the only one who can deliver me from the accusatory voice of my enemy. And so that's just a snippet of what God began downloading in me um, as I'm, I'm studying and I'm looking at this. And so, again, you want to read for depth, not distance. Reading the Bible for distance is like taking a rock and skipping it across a pond. It's just kind of across the surface, but it never gets any depth to it. And that's sometimes how we approach the Bible, how we approach the Word of God. I'm not against reading through the Bible in a year, but I've just discovered for most people, it becomes an overburdened task. Like, you do okay for the first few days or maybe the first few weeks, and then you missed a couple days and you know you're behind. You've got to read like eight or nine chapters a day. And then, then you look at your Bible and you're like, oh, do I really want to start today? Uh. And so you're just reading for distance. I would much rather you read for depth. 
Because it's like a cup of tea, and, and like you're the, you're the water in the cup of tea, and the Word of God is the tea bag, and if I just go, Doot, like reading for distance, Doot, not much happens. But if I steep that tea bag into your life, and then all of a sudden your life begins to take on the flavor and the color of the tea, and it begins to change you. And when you stop and you slow down and you listen and you meditate and you contemplate and you reflect, then God begins to download some things into your life. Listen, all of this is an act of worship because you're wanting to hear from your heavenly father. And over time, you will notice that your thought life begins to change and you struggle less with things like lust and temptation. Your passions begin to change and you become far more patient and compassionate. Your outlook in life begins to change and, and your, your thought processes get challenged by God and begin to get changed. And ch Listen, Paul says the way you transform your life is by the renewing of your mind. And so you're letting God's word filtrate, become the grid system of your thought processes. So you're filtering everything through truth and not the lies of the enemy, not the accusatory voice of the enemy. And your values begin to change. You begin to develop this insatiable appetite for the word of God and your motivation changes. See, I stopped reading and praying for the sake of duty to God. And I began reading and praying for the sake of friendship with God. Big difference. Huge difference. And so um, this is what Solomon is saying to us. We, we listen. And then, and then we speak. We pray. But I don't pray until I've listened. What do I pray? What do I speak? I speak back to God what God is teaching me. I speak back to God, the word of God. It's not that I don't pray for other things, but certainly this is a means by which I can pray. I, I take this psalm and I've been praying it back to the Lord in multiple different ways all week long because why? I want to ingrain it in my thought process. I want it down in my heart. I want it in the depths of my soul so that it begins to transform my life and begins to alter the way I live. And so if God's at the center and the object of worship, when we come into God's presence, it makes sense that we would begin not by speaking, but by listening. And notice what he says, so that we're not like the mindless fool. What is a mindless fool? A mindless fool is somebody who tries to worship God, but they really have little or any, no knowledge of God. They really have very little understanding of who he is. And see, if I just read for distance and I just kind of worship skimming and relationally with God throughout the, my life, thousands of people will come and they'll worship God every Sunday, and, and, but they don't even know the God they're worshiping. They don't even know Jesus that they're, they're proclaiming that he is Savior and Lord of their lives. They have very little knowledge. It's like skin deep. It's like two miles wide, but an inch deep. I'd rather see you be two miles deep and an inch wide. Now, I know that the reason behind this is because so many people come to faith in Christ, as I did, and they have a deep-seated father wound. You either had no dad, you had a bitter dad, you had an abusive dad, or you had a dad that was just wasn't worth much, uh, and there might be a thousand. You may have had a wonderful dad, I don't know. But there's a, there's a father wound and there's a mother wound, and here it is, is simply like this. 
is that fathers tend with their daughters is to protect them, to rescue them, right? They are our princess. You don't mess with our princesses. <laughs> so when my son-in-law's got married, you know, somebody asked me, why, why do you go to the gym all the time, work out? I said, because I got to keep up my strength because I told my son-in-laws when they married my daughters, if they ever laid a hand on them, I would take them out of this world and I got to make sure I can still do that. So that, that's just the way we do. And, but we tend to push our sons. And sons come out of that relationship oftentimes with their father is that I'm never enough. I'm never smart enough. I'm never athletic enough. I'm never talented enough. I'm never gifted enough. And the same is true for if you flip it around for mothers. Mothers tend to rescue their sons and push their daughters. And daughters come out of that mother-daughter relationship oftentimes feeling I'm never enough. I'm never smart enough. I'm never pretty enough. I'm never talented enough. And so we have this woundedness that is within us that our accuser takes advantage of in order to skew our relationship with God and to keep it surface level at best. The most important thing about you is your view of God so you don't want to let your earthly father or mother taint the perspective of your heavenly father. Listen, God the Father is good. In Genesis 1.28, it says the first thing that God did, he says he blessed them and then he spoke to them. That is the Father's heart. God wants to bless you. He wants to speak to you. He wants the best for you. He loves you. You are of value to him. You are adorable to him. And, but oftentimes there's this push. And because of that, is that we, we, there's, at best, there's like distance, especially in prayer. It's just hard to, for example, in my father's, my relationship with my dad, you know, we, we, we reconciled and all that, but my relationship has always been, I'm the one who's initiating it. It's pretty much like surface level. It's not really deep. There's no depth there. And so I really had a struggle in my walk with God, going deep with God, because there's just always inside of me, there's this angst that's, that's like, oh, but I'm not, I, I messed up this week, and I'm not good enough, and I'm not smart enough, and I'm not talented enough. And when God called me in ministry, I'm like, oh, God, you've got to be kidding me. You've got the wrong person. I don't speak, I was like, Moses, I don't speak well. I don't, you know, it's just like, oh, this can't be, you can't be calling me. And furthermore, because of our, our God is sovereign, is that the th second thing we have to keep in mind is that as we're praying and as we're speaking, is that God is sovereign and therefore God cannot be controlled. He can't be manipulated. He can't be forced to do anything. So mindless fools, consumers who come to worship and do not understand who God is and that God is good and wants to bless and wants to speak, oftentimes they will try to do just that. They come with the perspective of a pagan. And in paganism, people are at the center. Now watch this. So we live for ourselves, and whatever God we're worshiping we want that God to bow to our wishes and our commands. So this is why you have things like spells and incantations and rituals and um, sacred objects. These are ways that you can manipulate the spiritual realm so that your God will do what it is you want him to do. All right? 
So like if I'm worshiping the God of rain, I will have these incantations, I'll do these rituals, I'll have these prayers. I'm trying to manipulate the gods in the heavens who are reluctant to give me what it is I feel like I need or want. And so this is a means by which I get them to release what they are reluctantly wanting to release. See, sometimes we enter into our relationship with God with the very same mindset is what Solomon is going to say here when he talks about vows and he talks about promises that we make. Rash promises and rash vows that are given to manipulate God to get him to do something what we think he would not otherwise do. Have you ever said this? Hey, Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do this. If you'll just change that, here's what I'll do in response. That's exactly what you're doing. You're trying to manipulate God into doing something you don't think he wants to do. And maybe he doesn't want to do it because he knows it's not best for you, but you're not satisfied with that. You just want it. You want what we want, right? Because now we are operating out of me-centeredness rather than Christ-centeredness. So there are two kinds of vows. There are inner vows, our pledges and promises that we make internally to guide our future decisions. Often they're made out of pain, right? And so because we make inner vows out of our pain, they are intended to keep us from further pain, from further hurt. For example, a single person had their heart broken. Uh, they were engaged, and all of a sudden the young man broke it off, the romantic relationship, and the young woman said, you know what? I'm never going to allow my heart to feel this kind of hurt again. And that inner vow is now I'm going to wall myself off so that no one can hurt me the way I have just been hurt. When we're hurting and in pain, we make rash decisions and vows that we think will protect us in the short term, but actually they harm us in the long term. An inner vow takes that area of your life, watch this, and it removes the lordship of Jesus from it. He's no longer over it. He's no longer in charge of it. And rather than allowing him to speak into it, the pain, and rather than allowing him to heal the pain, you, 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 you just camouflage the pain. You cover it up. You hide it. You protect it because you think, and listen, an inner vow will be held more sacred to you than God's word itself if you're not careful. As a pastor, I've seen inner vows totally dominate the decision-making process of a person's entire life. I know of a young, young couple, and uh, when the wife was a child, she had a very painful experience and, um, from a male, and so continued to, to um, control her life decades later. So she fell in love, got married. The problem is she could not open up that side of her heart, right? She was still in protective mode. She was still in the mode of being guarded. And so her husband, just as try as he might, he just couldn't break through that barrier. And there was always this rift between them. And so they, they come for counseling. And, and listen, even if Jesus were to say to that, that woman, listen, um, I'm telling you, your, lo your husband loves you. He'll do anything for you. I'm just open up your heart to him. Just open up your heart. But she would say what? No, no. I have to guard this. I have to protect this. It was a demonic stronghold in her life that she refused to give up. 
And until she was willing to do that and allow Christ to bring healing and hope back into her heart, nothing would ever change in the relationship, no matter what the husband did. In 1999, and we're going to close here in a minute, Sarah, Sp- Sarah, Sp- Sarah Blakely went to an event, and um, she wanted to wear controlled top pantyhose without the hose. And she couldn't find any, so she developed her own, and it's called Spanx. Now, some of you may, may not know what those are, or, but that's how they were born, out of necessity. And today, Sarah has over 200 products And the company even has a man's line now called Manx, in case you're interested, guys. Uh, She started that company with just $5,000, never went into debt, never paid a nickel for any kind of advertisement, and yet she has 12,000 stores in 40 different countries selling her products. She has become a billionaire. Why? Because she has learned how to hide so that something that so that nobody else can see it. Here's the problem when we with inner vows is we become Spanx Christianity. We hide stuff, we stuff it, it's terribly uncomfortable, all because we're trying to look like something we're not. How are you doing? Fine. How are things in your life? Okay. It's great, wonderful. And so I'll just tuck in that marital conflict there and cram that anger down over here and that problem in here. I want you to hear me and hear me well. There is absolutely no healing in hiding. None. That's what I mean by Spanx Christianity. James 5.16 says that we only heal when we acknowledge that stuff and we bring it out in the open and we share it with others and we allow Jesus to heal us from the inside out. And so ask yourself, have you ever made an inner vow that governs the decision-making process of your life that you've never allowed Jesus to heal you of and you've never allowed him to have his lordship over that area of your life? Listen, I get trauma. Trauma is a liar. It tells you that the evil perpetuated against you was your fault. It tells you that you deserve what happened to you. It tells you that if people people knew about it. They would not like you. Trauma is a liar. It's a thief. It's a parasite. God says you are loved, valuable, and strong, so go with God. You need to get healed of those inner vows. Otherwise, you will always walk at a distance. And then there's outer vows, right? The most common outer vow would be what? That we know about. It's called marriage. It's called a wedding ceremony. So what do you do? You stand before God, you're before God and friends and family, and you're making vows to one another outwardly. And so we also come to God sometimes in our relationship. We try to make outward vows. We, again, we say when we're stressed or under duress, we shout out, you know, God, I swear, if you, if you will keep that from happening, I'll tell you what I'll do. I've, I've heard more people make vows. If you heal my mom, if you heal my dad of their cancer, I tell you, God, here's what I'll do. And God does heal, and then they don't do anything right? And so, you know, Lord, if, uh, if my girlfriend ends up not being pregnant, I'm telling you, I'll tie 50% to the church. I'll go, on a, I'll go on a mission trip somewhere. God, just keep it from happening. And so we as Christians make thousands of outer vows to God in order to try and manipulate God into doing what it is we want him to do. It's consumerism. It's a mindless sacrifice of fools. Sadly, in marriage, 
these vows are not taken very seriously by many brides and grooms. And so what, what did Solomon say? Solomon says, man, when you make these vows and you don't fulfill them, God gets angry. He's really not pleased with that. It's just like, it's, this is not a delight to him. What he wants to do instead is have you listen, let him download, and then speak and begin praying. And, and then now I'm following God's line of thinking, and I'm following his pattern of his will for my life. And I'm, you know, it might be that God has me in a valley, and I'm in a valley for a reason. But as I journey through that valley, again, God will do his deepest work in the deepest part of me, in the deepest valleys in my life. And if God wants to make me more like Jesus, sometimes I have to go through the valley. Why would I want to bypass that? But we try to, don't we? God, I promise you, you get me out. You change this. You make this. And then number three is obey. In verse five, seven, it says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. What he's simply saying is this. Talk is cheap. <laughs> talk is cheap. So Worship. Notice on your outline, worship is not just something we squeeze into our lives, but it is the first fruits of our lives. The rest of the life flows out of meeting with God, listening to God, hearing from God, and walking in obedience to God. Listen, your body is the place of God's presence. And it is through you, your body, that God reaches out to the world around you. So as God's working in me, he wants to what's, what's working in me to flow through me because there are people in your life who will never hear the voice of God until first you speak to them. You let that roll off of you. God may want to speak to somebody who's not going to be listening to God. They're, bought, they're an unbeliever. They're far from God. But God may speak to them through you as you're listening and he's downloading, some people may never feel the touch of God until you reach out to them with love and compassion. Some people will never see the face of God until they see the light and the life of Jesus in your eyes. I'm telling you, worship. Let's stop thinking of it in terms, a certain time, a certain place, a certain way. Let's think of it every single day I'm moving in the presence of God who dwells in me in the portion of the Holy Spirit. And I say, God, as this day begins, what do you want to say to me? Listen, pray, and then obey. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We adore you for all that you are to us. And God, what you have been to us, we desire to be to others. So this day, a day and we celebrate love and romance. Father, we thank you for the love and the romance that you have showered over us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to draw us into this beautiful, beautiful relationship so that all throughout the course of our day, Father, as we listen, as we pray throughout our day, as we walk in obedience to your will and to your ways, Father, we worship you. We adore you. We lay down our lives before you. May they be holy and pleasing to you, O oh God. 
And we thank you and praise you that all that we are, all that we will ever hope to be has been wrapped up in your son, Jesus. What a magnificent gift that you gave to us on that day. We trusted him to be Savior and Lord of our lives. In his name we celebrate. Amen.